Okay, let's get this web conference underway. We'll start with a karakia. Unahir te pō te pō whirimarama. Tomakia te ao te ao whatitangata. Tātai ki runga, tātai ki raro, tātai ahurau. Hamie, huie, tai ki e. Kia ora tātou, haere mai, and welcome to the Get Outdoors field trip, which is supported by Land Information New Zealand. Uh, and we've got with us this morning, Two experts, very lucky. We've got Luke from the police here. Good morning. And we've got Carl. And we're at the police station in Lower Hutt. We haven't been naughty. We are finding out all about search and rescue operations. And it's a much better day here in uh, Pornike, Wellington. Um, we don't have the rain and the, the wind quite that we had yesterday. So we're hoping to get out and about a bit more than we did the day before or yesterday. And we've also got our ambassadors. We've got Maya, the Loons ambassador. Just looking forward to getting out and about today. And Maya has met a friend on this trip. Bird of the year, Kākāpō. And this is Lindsay from Linz, who has joined the field trip. So that's pretty cool. Another parrot for Maya to get to know. She's a little bit jealous though, because. The Kākāpō is one bird of the year for, um, well, it's run it twice, whereas the Kia has only won it once. So it's a little bit green with envy. Never mind. Anyway, getting on with things. Um, before we start, I just want to allow Luke and Cal to tell you a little bit about the work that they do. We'll start with Luke. Luke, can you tell us a little bit about your job? Uh, so my job at the moment... I actually have sort of two jobs in the police. I have a day job now, which is on a community team um, in Johnsonville. So that is like the small police stations that you see in your communities. I work in one of those. But as well as that, I'm also on the Wellington search and rescue team. And for that, we're responsible for looking for lost people. Um, and that can be around the streets, in the bush, on the water, uh, in the mountains, everywhere really. Um, old people, young people, every type of person. So that's pretty much what I do. Sounds like that keeps you busy. And Carl? Um, so my job is a senior digital photographer and we maintain maps, which are topographical maps for New Zealand, Antarctica and the Pacific Islands. And the maps that we're gonna be seeing is one of our series, which is the Topo 50, which people like to use um, when they're getting out and about and walking around this great country of ours. Yeah, and you can find out more about the Topo 50 series on the background pages and by having a look at maps yourself and the videos from the first day where we used Topo 50 maps. And I'm sure we'll use them a bit more today. In fact, you can even see some maps behind us. Well, more of an aerial image actually, um, but from a distance, it looks like a map and it could be used to, to make maps from, I guess. Okay, so we'll get underway with questions. We'll start with question number one from Masterton Intermediate School, please. Great to have you with us again. What's the difference between a GPS and a GIS? Ah, oh, good question. Lots of acronyms. And I think Carl's the one to answer this one. Yep, I'll take this one. So 
The GPS is the G, uh, the global positioning system, and now that's a system of satellites that are working um, all the time that will send or track our locations on the ground, and we're using our devices to get the information from that system. The GIS is a geographical information system, and that can really be anything where you can view geospatial information. So that's more like the computer software that brings all this stuff together. So when we make our Topo 50 maps, we have our GIS is called the Topo 50 database, and that's a massive database with lots of information in it. You can actually get a free GIS, which is called QGIS, that you can download and put onto your um, laptops and stuff in school, and you can actually do your own mapping in that free GIS. So the GIS brings all the information together. So that can be maps and photos and points and lines and polygons. And then the GPS is all about our satellites and our position on the ground. Excellent, thanks Carl. And we learned from Bevan, yes, uh, not yesterday, uh, the first day of the field trip, Mountain Safety Council, um, about the kind of software that they're using and they're creating a big database um, where you'll be able to go to their site, I think next March and you'll be able to type in an area and it will bring up all the tracks and trails and adventures that you can go on in that area. And then you can bring up other information like weather for that region, um, special track alerts, um, where the dock huts are, all sorts of services that might be helpful in planning your adventure. So looking forward to that site going live later, um, later on, a few months time, in fact. Okay, can we now have question number two, please? How can the weather affect the RCC NZ searches? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to change this question slightly because the Rescue Coordination Centre was where we were yesterday and we looked at how the weather affects their operations and you can check out the videos to find out more about that. But Luke, with Search and Rescue, so you're the guys that, that follow the coordination of the Rescue Coordination Centre to do the searches on the ground, Lansar. Tell us about how the weather affects that. Um, the weather affects it a lot. It can mean, it can be quite restrictive for us. Like sometimes if there's say a lot of rain, then the rivers go up and we can't necessarily cross rivers. So we can't always get to where we want to go to search. Um, on the plus side for that though, it means that people, other people can't necessarily move either, the people we're looking for. So they may stay in a spot a bit longer. Um, in winter, it causes us big issues, like especially in the Tararua mountain ranges and things like that. Because you guys are from Masterton, is that right? Yeah, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, in the middle of winter, you get lots of snow up on those hills and lots of high winds, and that makes it hard for us as well. We had a big search there last year, which went for about, I think it went for about two weeks, but it went for two weeks because the weather was so bad, we couldn't put our searches in there to search. And I think even people we did have in the forest, they had to just sit in huts really and wait for the weather to get better. So the weather's a really big deal for us. Um, and probably as well, like if someone's lost in the bush and they say they don't have very good clothing, it, it gets more urgent. Like if, if the weather's cold and freezing, there's more risk that they can get hurt or, or have bad things happen to them. So we need to move quickly. 
Mm, and often it's the weather that leads to the trouble in the first place. So it's very important to check out weather conditions before you undertake your outdoor activities. Excellent question. And we'll have your next question now, please. Do search and rescue use a GPS or some sort of tracking device just in case you get lost or can't find your way? Thanks, Reese. Yeah, definitely. We're always using GPSs. Um, we still carry like maps and compass, but we also carry GPS and, and it's amazing for us. It helps us navigate a lot easier, uh, especially when we're in amongst trees and we can't see things so clearly to work out where we are. Um, GPS is amazing. So it helps us, yeah, so that we don't get lost, helps us go to the right places. It also helps us record where we've been. So we, when we come back to our bases, we can say, this is the area we've searched because it can track it for us. Um, and if we really got lost or in trouble, then we, we also carry PLBs, personal locator beacons. So we can activate those and they use GPS as well to say exactly where we are. And then people can come to us and rescue us if it got that bad. And we found out about uh, locator beacons yesterday at the Rescue Coordination Centre and they have to respond to all the distress beacons, all those signals. So if you, you push the button on your, on your beacon, it's the RCCNZ, Rescue Coordination Centre New Zealand, that has to respond and organise a rescue. So check out the video about that, um, which is online today. Okay, next question, please. How do, you train, how do you train search and rescue dogs and what is the best breed for search and rescue? Uh, this is an interesting question and I think we're going to be able to answer it better later on today when we meet a dog handler. But Luke, I'm sure you've got a few, few ideas. Yeah, just around um, the search and rescue dogs, like I, I can only really speak from the police point of view. When... When we train police dogs, they normally do two different things. They either become search and rescue dogs or they become armed defenders squad dogs. So if they like biting people a little bit more, they probably become armed defenders squad dogs. Um, and the process, it takes weeks and weeks, I think, for those dogs to train to whichever role they go into. Um, and most of our dogs are Alsatians, like the ones you'd see on, on TV, like German Shepherds. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to meeting a dog handler later today. And I know uh, someone in Dineen that does um, search and rescue as a volunteer and she trains her dog and she's always away on training weekends. You know, always trying to catch up with her, but it's like, no, away on another training weekend. So it does take a lot of training, both for the person and for the dog. Okay, next question, please. How long would it take for a rescue dog to find someone? Oh, we started talking about this before and we thought, well, how long's a piece of string? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, tracking, dogs can track hours and hours after a person's been through an area, uh, even though we can't see anything or we, we might think the person's long gone, the, potentially the dog can still track. So I've seen... Um, yeah, it's a very good question. And it really does depend. Sometimes if we get a dog in quickly, the quicker the better for us. 
Um, if there are no other people around, it's better again so that we don't have tracks crossing over each other and confusing the dogs. But yeah, if somebody like, if, if one of you guys say went off into the bush now and five minutes later, the police dog turned up, it would have no issues following you. Uh, and even if you went into a piece of bush uh, or across farm paddocks or something a few hours ago, it could probably potentially still follow you, especially if the wind wasn't, if it wasn't too windy and things like that. So yeah, it really just does depend on, yeah, on the environment and what other things are happening around and about. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll find out a bit more about that from our dog handler. Um, and that video will be online for you tomorrow. Okay, next question, please. What was your best search and rescue story? Oh, I love these questions. What was that one? What was your best search and rescue story? Uh, uh, no pressure. Um, I've done heaps of different searches and rescues. Um, I think my favourite ones are the ones where I get to go for a ride in the helicopter. Um, and we do that quite a bit. Uh, if we can't land the helicopter, we go on a winch. So we get winched into little clearings in the bush or winched out of clearings or creeks, things like that. And sometimes it's a bit scary and bad wind. The helicopter's moving all over the place and you're, you're praying you're not going to crash. But um, no, those ones are quite good. And it's always just nice, honestly. It's always nice to be able to find people. We People get lost even close to houses. It happens quite a bit now. They go for little bushwalks, like dads or mums might go with their kids, and then they can't find the track back. And we can find them and pick them up, and they're always really, really happy to see us. So that's quite nice. Yeah, I bet that's very satisfying. Okay. What questions are we up to? I'm just opening the chat window so I can see. Up to number six. So I think it was seven or eight questions. What's the time difference between a rescue mission and a recovery mission? And how can GPS help affect that? What is the difference between a rescue and a recovery? Sorry, we, we missed some of that question. Can you just repeat that, please? What's the time difference between a rescue mission and a recovery mission, and how can GPS affect that? Oh, good question. I guess that depends on a whole lot of things. So uh, I'm assuming when you say uh, like a recovery mission, do you mean like if a person hasn't survived or something? Is that what you mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the time difference, I guess once a rescue mission, that it's a lot more urgency for us. So if we think the person is still alive, for example, obviously we want to find them so that they don't get hurt or, or pass away or whatever situation they're in. So we have to work quite fast like that. Um, once we get to a recovery mission, if we've found the person we're looking for, or even if they were still alive, once we've found them, if they're okay and they're alive, then we can slow things down a little bit and we can make sure that we just do things absolutely in the best way possible and the safest way possible. And GPS helps us, probably helps us do that in the sense of we know exactly where we are, we know where we've got to get to, we can see and plot the best ways of moving between those points. And yeah, just a GPS lets us do it with a very high level of accuracy which is good for everybody. It keeps us safe if we know exactly where we are.
Thanks, Luke. And did we have any other questions this morning? Yep, that's cool. Can you explain why maps are important in the search and rescue mission? Oh, yeah, but maps would be key, I would assume. Yeah, maps are absolutely key. Um, they are absolutely key. I can't even say that enough. The way we use them, we we use maps to work out where we think the person last was, or where we know they last were, um, and from that point we can start looking at where they may have gone. And maps maps will show us the kind of landscape we're looking at. For example, if we if we had a person lost in the bush, we can look at a map, we can figure out, say, they were at a certain hut, and that was the last place anybody saw them. So that's our starting point. And from there, if there were lots of big cliffs all around the hut, for example, that someone couldn't climb over, by looking at the map, we know the direction they can travel and the directions they can't travel. So then we know where we to put our searches, and we can try and find the person that way. So that's even just the planning stage. And then obviously once we put teams into the field to actually go and look, the people that are running the search, they will say, you need to get to this grid reference or location on the map. And our field teams will then go to that location and they can start searching and doing whatever they need to do from there. So it really helps us communicate. And because we're all on the same, we're all using the same maps, we're all talking about the same things. That's how we can coordinate our searches and, and do the best job we can to find people. And we're actually going to have a look around the search and rescue ops room, operations room, and see how they plan a search and no doubt see some of the maps that Luke was talking about. Okay, have we got any other questions today? Yep. So that, that's your lot of formal questions. Sorry, I couldn't keep up with them because I don't have them on, on paper here in front of me. But um, if you do want to add any other questions, we've got time to answer those. So if anything has popped up during the conference and you're wondering about it, now's the time to ask. I've put one in there. Just, sorry. Okay, so we've got, uh, what was the free software that Carl mentioned earlier that anyone can download and use to make their own maps? And if you can spell it so we can put it as a link in here. Okay. <laughs> I actually got my Phosphor G shirt on today. So what I said was QGIS. So that's Quantum GIS. And I'm pretty sure if you just put in QGIS.com, that'll take you to it. And like we say as well, Google Maps is also there to use. And we saw some great use of Google Earth uh, yesterday when that turned things into 3D and we could zoom into those valleys and see where those huts are. Um, and then we could overlay our maps and our marine charts and everything on that as well. And as you put in there as well, ArcGIS is fantastic. So ArcGIS has a thing called AGOL. And there you can actually log on and do everything on the web. And you should be able to get a free AGOL account um, with your school as well. So you can either use your desktop software or online and you can start doing some mapping there. But all those things uh, you can use. And then a plug for us for our LIMS data service is that you can actually take all the different layers that are on a Topo 50 map and you can actually put them into your own map and make one for yourself for your local area. 
And I, with our paper maps, we don't have many road names on it and road names might actually be useful for you. And the topo data, all our roads have road names on them and those are the official road names from your councils. So go and have a play with whichever one you want. It doesn't really matter what you want to use. They all kind of do the same thing. And if you're interested, do it. Yeah, wouldn't it be cool to be able to map all your adventures that you've gone on and get outdoors week? Hopefully you've been on some or you're, you're going to go on some in, in the weekend. You could map those. Um, if you've got a school camp coming up, you might consult some maps and look at different layers of information to be able to plan activities. And then you could perhaps share it all in a map at the end. So lots of cool software to use there. Okay, have we got any other questions? What's the most common outdoor practice that you guys get called out for? This is a good question, Luke. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, in Wellington, at least, we get called out a lot. We have a whole lot, actually. I'll just list some of the ones we have, eh? Um, we get called out a lot for is elderly people who have, like, dementia or Alzheimer's, and they can't remember exactly where they're supposed to be or or they just get really confused. And sometimes they'll go, they'll wander away from their houses and no one really knows where they are. So we get called out a lot to look for them. Um, we get called out for people going on short walks near their house. And I think that's a big change. Um, years ago, lots of our searches used to be in, in the big areas, like up in the Tararua Forest Park. And we still get those but we get lots more in, in smaller areas and bits of bush that are nearby people's houses. Um, so I think that's a big change overall. Uh, we, we search for people that are sad and upset and have gone off and not wanting to see people. So we have to go and look for them as well. Um, yeah, they're probably our biggest ones. And we also have to search for people uh, that have problems on the water as well. So swimmers, people that are struggling off the beach. Um, the search and rescue team coordinates those rescues as well. And I guess um, the weather has a big impact if people get stuck and they're overdue and, and you might have to make sure that they're okay. Yeah, absolutely. So that happens quite a bit and that's people making good decisions as well. They go to a hut, for example, and they're expected to come out, but then the rains and rivers come up so they do the right thing and the smart thing. They stay in their hut and they wait for the river to come down. So, yeah, we make an assessment of whether we need to go in and try and find them. Um, but we'll speak to their families. And, and it's good for us because we can find out things like, do they have radios? Have they got a PLB with them? Because if, say, they have a PLB and it hasn't been activated and we know it's rained and we know rivers are high, we can be pretty confident that they're probably just being smart and sitting in the hut waiting. So we'll give them a little bit of time before we actually go in and start looking for them. Cool, thanks Luke. Okay, any other questions this morning? The last web conference for this field trip. So it's your last opportunity. All done, fantastic. Hey, well, thank you so much, Master and Media. It's been great to talk to you today and the other day and to have you on the field trip. I hope you've enjoyed it. We've certainly enjoyed talking to you as well. Hope you have a great day. Bye, Bye. guys. Yeah. Kaki, then. Bye. Well done. <laughs> See you later. And that brings our Learns Web conference to an end. Hopefully, you can uh, join us on another field trip soon.